This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In a rare moment of bipartisanship, both of Wisconsin's U.S. Senators are calling for a stop to exploitation and politicization over the recent attack on Waukesha's Christmas parade, in which six people were killed and more than five dozen were injured. Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin, along with Republican Ron Johnson, put out a joint statement over the weekend. The two U.S. senators, who are frequently opposed on most issues, wrote that they had full confidence in local officials. They also called for a thorough investigation and drew due process for the accused. After the Wisconsin gun deer hunting season came to a close last night, the Department of Natural Resources released the final number of deer killed. Hunters shot and killed 85,860 deer during the nine-day season, which continued a downward trend over the last five years. Last year, hunters shot 99,832 deer, and the five-year average is 107,762 deer per year. The number of hunters out in the woods also went down this year, with 551,809 gun hunting licenses being sold, down 1.5% from last year. Five Democratic state lawmakers have announced new legislation that would close the loophole for minors possessing certain guns. Wisconsin state law generally prohibits possession of a dangerous weapon by minors. It's a misdemeanor and carries a possible penalty of nine months in jail. But there is an exception for minors to possess long-barreled guns longer than 16 inches. That exception is on the books, say the lawmakers, to respect Wisconsin's sporting heritage, but it does not expressly mention hunting. The new proposed legislation would clarify that law to say that a minor may only possess a long gun if they are legally hunting. The loophole was used, most notably, to drop a misdemeanor charge against Kyle Rittenhouse, who faced a charge of possession of a dangerous weapon in addition to five other charges, including murder. He was found not guilty by a jury on all counts. A popular Wisconsin snack and salad topping is now tax-free, the Wisconsin Examiner reports. Craisins, or dried cranberries, had been classified as a candy for years, subjecting them to a candy sales tax. The Wisconsin budget, signed by Governor Tony Evers earlier this year, took craisins off the list of candies, however, allowing them to be sold tax-free as any other dried fruit. Wisconsin is the nation's leading producer of cranberries, more than 60% of the nation's supply are grown right here in the state, according to the Wisconsin State Cranberry Growers Association. A Madison police officer is on leave after he shot his gun in a southeast Madison home moments before an individual died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The State Department of Justice is investigating, as is required by state law when a police officer shoots a gun. The officer is unknown at this time, but has been placed on paid leave. Dane County is getting its eighth off-leash dog park, this time in Oregon, Wisconsin. The new dog park at Anderson Farm County Park in Oregon is now open. The 35-acre park features perimeter fencing with a separate area for small dogs, a limestone hiking trail, two paved parking lots, and an edible orchard. A permit is required to bring your dog to a dog park within Dane County. 
Students at Middleton High School are out of school this week after pipes froze and burst in the high school building over the Thanksgiving break, reports Channel 3000. Students had no school today. For the rest of the week, they'll be attending virtual school. The district said in a Facebook post that they'll have more updates for families later in the week. Keep an eye out in the parks around Madison and you could find the great seal of the Ho-Chunk Nation. A medallion hunt will be running in City of Madison Park starting this Wednesday. It'll last until December 10th or until the medallion is discovered, whichever comes first. It's a project of Andy Cloud, Native American storyteller-in-residence at Madison Public Library. Clues to the medallion's location will be uploaded daily to the Madison Public Library's website. The first person to find the medallion will be able to take it home as a prize, in addition to a $50 gift card. And now, on to today's top stories. The world is in mourning after UW-Madison alum Virgil Abloh passed away yesterday. Abloh was an international icon, primarily known for his groundbreaking work in fashion design. WORT reporter Ben Kern tells us more. Celebrities flooded social media with thoughts and prayers to honor the passing of a 41-year-old who took the design world by storm. The death of Virgil Abloh was announced yesterday by clothing giant Louis Vuitton, which Abloh had been the men's artistic director for since 2018. He was also the CEO and founder of Off-White, a fashion company that revolutionized streetwear into the design world. Abloh had been privately suffering from cardiac angiosarcoma, a rare form of heart cancer, since 2019. Originally from Illinois, Virgil Abloh graduated from University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2003 with a degree in civil engineering. After completing his master's degree in architecture from ITT, he strayed away from his diplomas and got his first glimpse into fashion as an intern with Fendi. It was here that Abloh met future collaborator Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. Abloh would go on to be the creative director for Ye, launching him into the spotlight of success and down his path to fame. In fact, his artwork for Wash the Throne, a collaborative album from rappers Ye and Jay-Z, was nominated for Best Recording Package at the 2011 Grammy Awards. A pioneer in blending the borders between fields, Abloh dipped his toes in several realms of design, such as crafting furniture for IKEA and redesigning and reselling street clothes with his 2012 company Pyrex Vision. He even helped McDonald's design the boxes for Big Macs. Abloh was adamant on distinguishing himself as more than just a clothing designer to stick out in the field. Sarah Ann Carter is Executive Director of Design and Material Culture at UW-Madison. She says Abloh is an example for her students. When I think about Virgil Abloh's approach, I really think about it as the future of design for our students. Like that's what I hope for them, that they'll be able to cross categories and think about how to make the design work that they do more accessible. And that's what he really did. Like he made design accessible, the design process accessible for so many people. This accessibility can be seen through the casual edgy clothing of Off-White, Abloh's first fashion house. The clothing line focuses on high-end street clothing, something unique to the fashion scene. By 2018, Off-White was one of the world's best-selling clothing brands. It was in 2018 that Abloh became artistic director for Louis Vuitton's menswear, the first African-American male to do so. Even with this celebrity-type status, Virgil Abloh made sure to remember his roots. Back in 2015, he came to UW-Madison to announce a new scholarship fund for students coming to the university. He also designed the 2015 Red Shirt, an annual charity for the university, and the proceeds went directly to this fund. Sarah Schutz is executive director of UW's Alumni Association. She says the connection he kept with the university highlighted his character. We've been in collaboration with Kanye West for a little bit of time and had 
you know, already started making his mark on, on the fashion and design industry and as well with the DJ. And uh, so we were, we were just so thrilled and honored uh, that he came back to campus, spent time with us, spent time with students, shared his talent to benefit a student scholarship was just uh, exhibited his incredibly generous spirit as well as his creativity that he is known for. In 2020, Ablo started another scholarship fund named Postmodern that gives out monetary support to black students looking to go into the fashion industry. Marianne Fairbanks, associate professor of human ecology at UW-Madison, says he has even come back to teach students. He had a lecture here I think two years ago. And I mean, our students were just ecstatic about the idea of going to see him in person and hear about his brand and his story. So, you know, I think he wasn't a fashion major, disappointingly, but um, it was it was pretty strong to have have the knowledge that he was an alumni of UW and you know, such a role model for our students. Virgil Abloh will be remembered for not only crossing boundaries in fashion and design, but proving to all of us that a degree doesn't define your future. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. Devil's Lake State Park is slated to get a new education center. The question of where to put the education center, though, has neighbors divided. WORT producer Nate Wagihaut has the details. On the shores of Devil's Lake, outside of Baraboo, the Friends of Devil's Lake have been working for years to build a new education and interpretive center. Some of the area's residents, however, say that the spot picked out by the group could be disastrous. The Defenders of Devil's Lake is a loose coalition of community members who live near the park who oppose the planned placement of the center. They say the proposed location poses environmental concerns for the lake. The Department of Natural Resources has final say over where the site goes, but the defenders of Devil's Lake say the Friends of Devil's Lake is pushing the DNR in the wrong direction. The planned site for the project sits along the parking lots on the north end of the park. It was selected due to its proximity to the lake, as well as structural factors such as location of bedrock and amount of traffic. The site was selected by a group called GWWO, an architecture firm out of Baltimore. Bernadette Greenwood is president of Friends of Devil's Lake. She says the site was picked carefully and matched the needed criteria. The one that they believed was the best site, they looked at a bunch of criteria and they they uh, looked at where, the, where, you know, what was, you know, whether there was a connection to the resource, building on a location, you know, as far as the buildability of the site, is there infrastructure, a whole um, slew of, of criteria and um, North Shore across the railroad tracks from Rock Elm Shelters has, is what they deem to be the best site. But not everyone is on board. Claire Dwyer is a member of the Defenders of Devil's Lake, which opposes the location. Dwyer says that building anything close to the lake is dangerous, as there's no natural outlet for the lake, so anything that ends up in the lake will stay in the lake. And any construction along this lake, which has no natural outlet, is just asking for water problems. You know, who knows what they will dig up with their foundation. It's just dangerous. Dwyer and the defenders also say the Friends have not coordinated with the Ho-Chunk tribe with the location of the site, which sits close to an effigy mound. The lake is a special place for the Ho-Chunk tribe, which used to call it Spirit Lake, Dwyer explains. They want to expand lot number three on the North Shore is precariously close to some ancient Native American effigy mounds. And they want to expand lot number three, which means they would be even closer to these mounds, which should be left totally pristine and untouched 
nothing should even be near them. But the friends push back. They say that the Ho-Chunk culture is important to the center and that they have included members of the tribe to public meetings from the very beginning. Greenwood says that while the center is close to the mounds, it would not disturb them in any way and would actually be able to provide more protection for them. Yeah, they would definitely not be, um, if anything, we would we would be able to you know, probably use funds to enhance signage, enhance uh, opportunities to learn about the mounds to protect them. The defenders argue that there is a better site for the center, one that says sits further away from the lake. They say that location would allow easy access to the center while eliminating environmental concerns with building near the lakeshore. They say that with the alternative, Parking could be expanded in the future, traffic congestion by the lakefront would be reduced, and it could be used to collect solar energy. A final decision was expected to come in early 2022 when the DNR is slated to finish its master plan for the Central Sand Hills region, reports the Baraboo News Republic. But it could take longer than that. The deadline for the master plan has already been extended once. The DNR did not return a request for comment by airtime. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Whether on a pizza or on a pile of soil, you can't deny the allure that mushrooms have on people. But a new study taking place in Wisconsin may find that mushrooms are more than just a tasty food. WORT Assistant News Director and overall fun guy, Nate Wegehout, spoke with Marathon County Solid Waste Department Director and Project Coordinator, Melissa Johnson, about the new project. In a shed in Marathon County, a patch of mushrooms is growing on a patch of soil that was at the site of an oil spill. The Marathon County Solid Waste Department hopes that after several weeks, the soil will be free from contamination and be once again safe for plants to grow. With me today is Melissa Johnson, project coordinator for the project with the Marathon County Solid Waste Department. Melissa, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure, absolutely. So starting things off, cleaning soil by growing mushrooms. Where did the idea for that come from? Well, it, interestingly, it came from one of my customers. And this customer is a general contractor, an architect general contractor. And they were looking at a development in Stevens Point, actually, where I live. And this contractor had suggested, um, because there was contamination on this site, he had asked the engineers working on the project for the city of Stevens Point, he said, I heard somewhere that you could use mushrooms to clean up soil. And um, they laughed at him. <laughs> and this customer of mine called me and said, hey, did you ever hear about this? Because I was just talking to engineers and they said they've never heard of such a silly thing and, you know, kind of dismissed me. And I said, you know what? I know a few people who can answer that question better than, you know, dismissing you. And so it came from asking a question and out of curiosity being dismissed, but then continuing on to try and find a solution. And uh, I worked my network of fabulous contacts in not only the solid waste industry, but throughout uh, the state. And uh, we came up with this plan. So tell me about this project. I know the research into this is still fairly new. You're still in the middle of researching whether this concept will even work, correct? That's correct. And, you know, I should back up a little bit, too. There is a, a, an abundant amount of information and studies 
um, that demonstrate that plants can actually remediate uh, contaminated water and of and, and soils. It's called phytoremediation. And I have colleagues in the state that actually work on that. So it was a natural extension to think about plants remediating soil, sort of very natural. I mean, that's what swamps are. You know, that's what they do. They filter out all the contaminants. And so it was a natural connection to, to look at, um, at the fungus doing that. And, and the whole concept is, you know, if you get your backyard compost. I don't know if you're a backyard composter, but I am. A big part of breaking down the materials in your compost is fungus. So it, there's a natural connection between um, the natural world and taking these complex organic compounds like petroleum distillate materials and working to break them down. So we're in the very beginning stages. We just started with a hypothesis. We knew we had a contaminated soil. We know that there is potential but we wanted to have a somewhat controlled system of evaluating the effectiveness, the efficacy of, of our efficacy of, of this concept. So this concept, micromediation, what is micromediation and how are mushrooms thought to clean up the soil? Well, it's called mycoremediation, which myco is, is the fungus, actually. That's the kind of the derivative. And Again, I am not the technical expert. I'm just the person who said I would love to see if we can get this pulled together. And I'm actually a neighbor of a local fungus expert. He's a mushroom farmer, actually, urban mushroom farmer, and reached out to Jerome. And in conversations with him, he goes, this makes absolute sense. Once again, as the fungus grows, it takes up all sorts of nutrients. And in that process, it breaks them down for the purposes of feeding that fungus so that it can grow larger. And so by extension, we are looking at the, the very basis of the fungus going, hey, this is something we can't necessarily use, but if we break it down, you know, you go, I'm being very simplistic here, talking like a fungus in the soil, but if we can break this down, we might be able to use what remaining nutrients are a part of this. And then once we've broken it down, once you break the carbon from the hydrogen or hydrogen and the oxygen, you just have a very simple, you know, your molecular material. You no longer have a petroleum material. You no longer have a hazard. So the fungus is looking for nutrients. It's looking for ways to do what it does naturally, break things down. And in that process, our hypothesis is it will fracture. It will break those bonds that create the petroleum product and break them into um, harmless byproducts. So what are the what types of mushrooms are you using for this project to see if you can't break down the uh, petroleum? The ones that, um, again, the local expert is Jerome Segura III, uh, Segura Mushroom Farms. He had suggested pearl mushrooms and an Italian uh, mushroom, Italian oyster mushrooms. He felt they had the best um, sort of fungal basis to do what he wanted or wanted to see done. Um, now these are, you know, gourmet mushrooms. If you go to any gourmet shop, you're going to find these on the shelf, certainly not the ones grown in, in the petroleum soils, but these are the ones that Jerome felt had the most complex um, underpinning and that could 
do the work that was expected in breaking down that uh, petroleum-contaminated soil. I was going to ask because I know that those are usually edible mushrooms. After they go through this process, are the mushrooms still edible? Are they still we, safe to eat? <laughs> we we do not know. And to be on the safe side, we will probably put them back into the landfill um, because we certainly don't want to take a risk um, of eating something that wouldn't be good for us. But by comparison, if you think about taking uh, 20 yards of contaminated soil, so that'd be like a pickup truck full, or not pickup, a dump truck full of soil, and which if it's contaminated with oil derivative, it has to get landfilled. We can't keep it out in the environment. It can harm the groundwater, surface water, um, and is unsafe for the environment. But if we can take it instead of sending it to a landfill, if we can use the mushrooms to remediate it, so in other words, make it safe again, then the smaller fraction is the mushrooms, the residual mushrooms. Those can be disposed of, and again, a much, much, much smaller fraction. And the soil then can be reused for more productive things. So there is another project that is, I believe, starting later this year that will study mycomediation on PFAS chemicals, which is a very hot-button issue. Are you involved with that project at all? Well, yes. It actually was my idea. And um, in conversation with my staff, my team, so that's working on this, and then again, our fungus expert, Mr. Segura, um, we speculated if we have some success with, and again, we haven't seen the lab data. We will see that. Um, we have, you know, sort of basic evidence of smell. The untreated soils smell yet of petroleum. The treated soils, the mushroom soils, now have a better odor. They do not smell like petroleum. So we, from that evidence, we have an assumption that we've made some progress. In, in that kind of finding, I said, could we... Could we look at using fungus to fracture? Because that's what you really need to do in PFAS. PFAS is a carbon and a fluorine carbon that are just the bond is so strong. We know of nothing except extraordinarily high temperatures that will fracture that, those, that bond. Could the fungus do that for us? And so we're going to be looking at some uh, PFAS-contaminated material and run a similar experiment. We may not be successful, but without taking that first step, we will never know. Well, as a mushroom nerd, um, Elisa, this is all very exciting for me. <laughs> uh, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us on the project? I think this is one of the biggest takeaways for me, other than, you know, this really fascinating opportunity to move into the next phase of how we manage waste materials. You know, this started because someone asked a question, and that's, that's really what we need to start doing, because otherwise we're going to keep doing the same old things. And it took my customer asking that question, could we do this? And that started this whole process. So... I'm, I'm adjunct faculty or have been at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point in the waste management program, and that's one of the biggest takeaways is I tell my students, never stop asking questions because that's how we make the changes necessary to move on to something better. I've been speaking with Marathon County Solid Waste Department Director and Project Coordinator Melissa Johnson about their mushroom mycomediation project. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. 
My pleasure. And if anybody has any questions, we are very happy to welcome visitors and, and chat with them about our project. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up. Forward Lookout looks at this week in city government. Bridging the Gap looks at securing music rights. The Past Isn't Past looks at the nation's first female muckraking journalist. And two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we sit down with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan city and county agendas for what's up next in local government. This week, discrimination complaints, snack complaints, and more. Conkle joined WORT's Dylan Brogan shortly before airtime today. That's right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, Tuesday. We have, uh, looks like the Equal Opportunity Commission, their executive committee, and they have uh, just one agenda item, but perhaps an important one. What is it, Brenda? So they do meet every month right before their meeting uh, of the whole commission, and they talk about what the agenda item is going to be. They're also going to talk about the complaint process and other processes to figure out how to make that easier for people who are filing complaints. And filing complaints about discrimination, right? Yeah, discrimination based on housing, in, in housing, in public accommodations, and in employment. All right. And on Wednesday, uh, we have the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County. It's a it's a it's a joint city county meeting and it's all virtual, just like all the meetings we're talking about this week. It's the beginning of COVID update right at the beginning of December. Uh, some scary COVID news happening. So we'll get an update on that. Yep, that's a, they get that every month. Um, there's never anything linked to it, so you have to attend to find out what the updates are. Um, the other things that may be of interest, they are looking at that ordinance for the city of Madison that would um, prohibit uh, declawing cats. Um, so that ordinance is making its way through the system. There is also an ordinance to ask the public health director to pull back her emergency order until there could be more public input about the mask orders. Um, and so that's coming from the county board. So they have a city council item and a county board item, and then they'll get lots of reports. Well, that should be uh, an item of note for sure. So right now we're under a mass mandate until the, into the new year at least. But it did seem like the last, uh, the November mask order, they're like, hey, this we don't plan on doing this again. But then they did. Yeah, and who knows what the new virus, yeah. what, what will happen next. Let's move on to the city of Madison now, and we'll go straight to Tuesday and the ethics board. They don't meet very often. Oh, this is a good one, Brenda. <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> so we have we like to, we, hey, we talk about ethics and ethical violations on this show more than most, perhaps, on this little segment of mm, ours. It is true. Right? And uh, we have one of that we're going to take very seriously, but it does have to do with snacks. Yes, apparently the city assessor has been giving out candy bars and developer Terrence Wall is not happy about it. So he has filed an ethics complaint. Um, 
you would think in all of the business that the city does and all the millions of dollars it goes through its budget, we would find other things to talk about and that perhaps there should be other ethics complaints being filed. But this one got filed by Terrence Wall, and so the ethics board is taking it up. You got to file. I think that's the point. Yep. Uh, that is absolutely the point. You know, and I, I feel like I've been the only one who's filed most of the ethics complaints um, over the years. Not true, but it feels like not very many of them uh, actually get filed. They meet maybe once a year. Um, so interesting. Yeah, this is yeah. a rare occasion. And so developer Terrence Wall, people might have heard of him because he has a lot of development and uh, a prominent person in the building of things in this town in Middleton and other areas. Uh, and he also ran for Senate, I believe. But basically, what he was alleging is that the city assessor was uh, having an undue influence over uh, the board of review while he uh, was asking this uh, this board of review to value his properties lower so he'd be taxed less. And he thought the the, the snacks might have swayed it towards uh, sticking him a higher assessment. Yep, that is that is it. <laughs> And it's interesting because um, he's one of the few people who actually challenges many of his assessments. When you look at the agendas, you can't always tell that it's him, but he's got lots of LLCs and, and probably appeals just about every, <laughs> every tax assessment that he has. Wednesday, 4.30, the Urban Design Commission is meeting virtually. Plenty of things happening, uh, and people should uh, definitely pay attention for something that's going on in their neighborhood in terms of uh, buildings being approved and such. Yep, that fire station number six located in uh, Urban Design District mm -hmm. out on Badger Road will be on the agenda. There's a bunch of signage that's going to be approved or likely be approved as well. Um, there's some projects on Gemini Drive um, as well as 322 East Washington. That's the redevelopment of the St. John's Lutheran Church. Okay. Um, and then there's another project on uh, 200 block of East Olin Avenue, and then they are going to decide if they are going to continue meeting virtually or if they want to return to in-person meetings. Thursday, the Madison Arts Commission will uh, be reappointing uh, the same Poet Laureate, right? And, and they have other business as well. Tell us more about it, Brenda. Yep, they're, they're appointing the Poet, poet Laureate as well as looking at potentially doing a Youth Poet Laureate for the City of Madison right. as well. It's a program that was sort of ignored for many years and in the last 10 years has sort of regained some popularity and um, the council often gets um, some um, readings from, from the Poet Laureate. And so that's that's interesting to bring more art into um, the city council meetings as well as throughout the city. Um, they'll also be looking at some grants that they are, they give out every year as well as some blink uh, blink grants, which are projects that are temporary and that go away. And then they have an honors event coming up and they'll get lots of reports as well. 530, we have the task force on structure of city government, the ad hoc final report implementation work group. Sound, they sound important, great. Brenda, and I know they haven't met in a while. So what's happening with T-Fogs has somehow become what we call that. Yeah, it's a lot easier to say. Um, so they are also going to be talking about if they should meet virtually or in person. Um, they do have a draft ordinance um, for changing some of the city council's order of business. And then they are looking at the still looking at a committee of the whole meeting to talk about boards, committees, and commissions, and um, they are looking at trying to eliminate some of them. I know from attempting this twice when I was on the city council, it does not go over well. Usually, um, very few actual uh, boards, committees, and commissions get cut, so we'll see once if they have any better uh, luck with this. Um, and then they're going to continue discussing the TFOG's recommendations. And finally, this week, we have uh, at 7 p.m., 
the Police Civilian Oversight Board. They will be interviewing the one and only candidate that the city currently has for the independent police monitor position. Yep, and they'll be doing that in closed session, so there won't be a lot to see there, but um, it is moving forward, and they're going to decide what kind of a recommendation they will give after that. And for more on what's happening in Dane County and Madison government, head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda Conkle, thank you so much for taking us through this week in local government. Welcome. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the life and trying times of Anne Royale. By some accounts, she was the nation's first woman muckraking journalist. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up. This Friday, December 3rd, marks the founding in 1831 of the nation's first muckraking newspaper by Annie Royale. At the age of 60, Royale was an iconoclastic writer and editor. She founded the paper with the help of her friend, Sally Stapp. It was named the Paul Pry and challenged government officials and bureaucrats, criticized waste, rooted out nepotism and corruption, opposed religious zealotry, slavery, the ill-treatment of Indians, and advocated for widows and orphans for over 20 years. She employed many young orphans in the newspaper, one of whom came up with the name. Royale used satire and comedy as she challenged sexism and ageism. She declared in her premier issue, We shall advocate the liberty of the press, the liberty of speech, and the liberty of conscience. The enemies of these common bulwarks of our common safety as they have shown none, shall receive no mercy at our hands. She did this a generation before the suffrage movement and brought the voice of women into the back room of the male bastions of banking and politics, said her biographer Jeff Biggers in his book, The Trials of a Scold, the incredible true story of writer Annie Royale. Born in Maryland in 1769, at 18, Annie became a housekeeper with her mother for Major William Royale, Revolutionary War hero and Freemason, living in what would become West Virginia. Her employer took a liking to Annie and paid for her education. They married when Annie was 28. William was 20 years older. When he died 15 years later, he left the bulk of his estate to Annie, but his extended family successfully challenged the will, leaving Annie with only a small settlement. She decided to travel to Alabama. Over four years, she included notes on the towns, the work, and the people in caustic letters to her friend. Annie Royale's politics were shaped by the poverty she had experienced in Appalachia. She was also influenced by the access she had enjoyed to her husband's excellent library. She launched her pioneering literary career at 57 when her book Sketches of History, Life and Manners in the United States came out. In the 1820s, she was viewed as serpent-tongued, introducing a free-thinking Southern view, challenging notions of respectability for Christian women. She traveled the rough country alone, quickly publishing a series of black books. Informative, sardonic portraits of the elites and their denizens from Mississippi to Maine, they became prized possessions, delighting people with her devastatingly funny descriptions of those in power. Power brokers sought her company or locked the doors. She also introduced the term redneck in her writings. Royale's biographer, Biggers, believes she relished the attention she got in the nation's capital, even after she limped 
after a brutal attack in Vermont by a religious zealot, was scarred by a horsewhipping in Pittsburgh, and was chased out of taverns along the Atlantic coast. She first came to D.C. in 1824 to lobby for a pension as a veteran's widow. There was no automatic pension for widows. They had to plead their cases individually to Congress. Among those she lobbied was John Quincy Adams during his presidency and later when he was in Congress. In 1829, when she was 60, Powerful evangelists took Royal to court to face charges of being an evil, disposed person and a common scold. The trial of Annie Royale was one of the most bizarre in Washington, D.C. history. It echoed witch trials from over a hundred years before, invoking ancient English common law. The sentence was to be humiliating public immersion in water, viewed in ancient times as a sport for the mob in ducking women, especially older women, as a precursor in trials for witchcraft. In fact, England had curtailed the conviction of common scolds when it had ceased hanging women in Roma as witches. Royal's real crime was unabashed acts of free speech and free press. She was convicted and fined, but not dunked. Two Washington journalist friends paid her fine, but Annie Royal persisted. Among her victories was the passage of a federal widow's pension law in 1848, but the royal family came back and took most of that away from her. Ultimately, she got her revenge on the establishment by launching her pioneering investigative satirical newspaper, The Paul Pry, and running it for 20 years until her death in 1854. And that is our story for today. For the past is in past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.45 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Music rights have been a tricky thing for artists from the Beatles to Prince to Taylor Swift. On tonight's edition of Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen explains why singer Taylor Swift is re-recording her albums. On November 12th, Taylor Swift released the re-recording of her album Red, now named Red parentheses Taylor's version, and immediately swept the Spotify Global Top 50 charts with all 30 songs on the album. This is the second album that Taylor Swift has re-recorded. Earlier this year in April, she released her first re-recorded album, Fearless Taylor's Version. You might be wondering why Swift is re-recording songs that she had already released before. What makes a Taylor's Version album different from the previous albums? This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature exploring the generational gap between Gen Z and other generations. The year was 2019. 
Swift's old record label, Big Machine Records, sold the masters of her music to private equity group Ithaca Holdings, which is owned by music manager Scooter Braun. Shirley Halperin from Variety writes, quote, Masters recordings earn revenue through multiple avenues, including streaming and consumption, sampling, public broadcast, use in television, film, and commercials. End quote. This means whenever Swift's music is streamed or bought, the profit will go to Scooter Braun and not Taylor Swift. Moreover, even though she wrote every single one of her songs, she will not be able to own them if the masters are sold to someone else. Thus, she decided to re-record all of her old albums that were owned by Big Machine Records under her new label, adding parentheses Taylor's version after each title. Swift isn't the only artist in the music industry who has encountered a turbulence when it comes to owning her own music. Most music artists don't really own their music. In the 80s, Michael Jackson acquired the Beatles' Masters recordings, which later merged with Sony. Their song Revolution was then used in a Nike commercial, which member George Harrison was unhappy about. Do something. Anything. Harrison said he felt as though they were selling out their work, and that Nike had no respect for their artistry. The Beatles didn't realize what they were signing away when they signed with their record label, only to find out later that they had no control over who their music got sold to. Once their master recordings were sold, it became clear that their recordings were now being passed around the industry as merchandise sold again and again to different companies, and were being used in various occasions without their knowledge. The worst part? They couldn't do anything about it. While the Beatles were resigned to their fate, another singer who faced the same issue was not willing to back down. Before Taylor Swift made the announcement to re-record her music to reclaim the rights to her work, Prince had already been fighting a long battle with his record label and the music industry about owning the rights to his own music. He changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol known as the love symbol, hoping that would null the effect of his contract as he was no longer named Prince. In an interview with Billy Wolichka on Much More Music in 2004, Prince talks about his main conflict with record companies. I was recording the albums myself in my own studio, so the way I looked at it, I created it so I felt like it should belong to me. The um, companies felt otherwise. They would always hold this contract up and say, well, you signed it. And I say, well, not like I want to leave. I just want to, you know, talk about this thing and see if we can't make it more fair. Of course, they wouldn't change because if they change, they wouldn't really exist. Prince had hopes that perhaps the music industry would change for the better. But 17 years after the interview, it seems that the same battle he was fighting still exists. Now with Taylor Swift bringing the issue back to light, it might be expected that record companies will become more flexible with artists' contracts and managing music ownership. However, Taylor Swift's current label, Universal Music Group, is reportedly making it harder for artists to re-record their music. According to a Wall Street Journal article, Universal Music Group has been doubling the amount of time allowed for an artist to re-record their own music after its initial release. This makes it harder for artists to reclaim the rights to their work later on. Even with famous artists such as The Beatles, Prince, and Taylor or Swift speaking out about music ownership, it seems as though record companies always know how to change the rules to ensure they are still in control. For Bridging the Gap and WORT, I'm Teresa Yen. As Broadway fans mourn the loss of Stephen Sondheim, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews 
Tick, Tick, Boom, a new film about the creator of Rent, and a new Beatles documentary about the 1969 creation of their last album, Let It Be. Here's the Monday Movie Review. You need to ask, are you letting yourself be led by fear or by love? Fear! A hundred percent fear! That was glib from the trailer for Tick, Tick, Boom, a biographical movie about the late Jonathan Larson, creator of the Broadway hit Rent. It's the directorial debut for Lin-Manuel Miranda. The screenplay is by Stephen Levinson. This is a moving, well-acted, written and directed film based on Larson's struggle to make his first play, Super Bia, an ambitious science fiction musical. Andrew Garfield in Spider-Man does an extraordinary job playing Larson. As our story opens, Larson is trying to finish that vital opening song, fretting over turning 30, his girlfriend's impending move, and making enough money to pay the bills. He waits tables at the local breakfast place. Friends are dying of AIDS, and his roommate and best bud, Michael Robin de Jesus, is moving out. Michael has quit acting, gotten an advertising job, and a great apartment. Michael offers to help him get a job writing jingles. Larson replies, only half kidding. You just want to lure me to the dark side. At his workshop, performers sing to a select audience to find investors for a full musical. He invites his hero, Stephen Sondheim, to attend. There's a seat reserved for his dancer, girlfriend Susan, a winning Alexandra ship. She has been offered a dance instructor's job in the Berkshires. He could join her, but that would mean leaving New York. The workshop goes well, but as his agent, a notable performance by Joanna Adler says, everyone said, I can't wait to see what he does next. But we know what happens next. Tick, tick, boom, and rent. Tragically, though, he died of an aortic aneurysm a few days before rent was performed. Thanks to efforts by his family, there was a New York Health Department investigation into the two hospitals where he received emergency care, resulting in a rare fine against the hospitals. The report said that if Larson had been properly diagnosed, he may well have lived. His family's civil suit against the hospitals was settled for an undisclosed amount. Part of that money went to the National Marfan Foundation, an advocacy group for people with Larson's condition. Anthony Rapp, who plays Mark in Rent, said, It's tragic knowing that if this happened today, Jonathan, the toast of Broadway, would have been treated with the utmost care. Tick, tick, boom, just started playing on Netflix. Now for another musically-oriented film about a famous foursome. The best bit of us, always has been and always will be, is when we're backs against the wall. All we've got is us. What do you think? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother May... That was a clip from the trailer for The Beatles, Get Back, the new three-part documentary directed by Peter Jackson. This great documentary contains never-before-seen footage from a shelved Beatles documentary filmed in January of 1969, detailing the making of Let It Be, culminating in the famous rooftop concert at their Apple Studios building. The movie came out over Thanksgiving weekend on Disney Plus and runs about eight hours. It shows us a day-to-day account of the creative process and the group's breakup. Part one was a little tedious but ends with the dramatic withdrawal of George Harrison. Harrison seems fed up with being dissed by McCartney. In part two, we see several days consumed by getting Harrison back. Harrison gets the group to leave the cavernous cold Twinkenheim space for the friendlier confines of their Apple Studios. Once settled in, with a deadline closing in, the group really starts to jam and cranks out Let It Be. McCartney treats Harrison better, and they all seem more relaxed. In part three, it all comes together with some warm scenes of family members visiting the set, Yoko Ono, Linda Eastman, Linda's daughter Heather, 
who nearly steals the show during her visit, we see the important role of producer George Martin, engineer Glenn Jones, and loyal roadie Mal Evans, among others. The director, Michael Lindsay Hogue, left a treasure trove of over 60 hours of video and 150 hours of audio that Jackson and his editor, Jawbees Olson, took four years to put together. The music mixing of Giles Martin and Sam Ockel should also be noted. All in all, an amazing piece of restoration, bringing a memorable time of music and musicians back to life. I highly recommend it. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Special thanks to feature contributors Teresa Yen, Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. Good night.